If you have a Bible, will you go with me to Matthew 11? Um, yeah. Matthew 11, verse 28. And uh, are we a little on the loud side there? Thank you. Great. Um, here's the plan for these next couple of days. What I'd like to do is talk with you, think with you, and pray with you about rest. Rest, so I'm going to assume that most of you are tired right now. And maybe you're tired physically, but I'm talking about tired in your soul. And um, I have been tired in my soul last several months. So where I'm residing right now and where I'm going when my brain's in default is Matthew 11. And this has really been um, food for me recently. And so what I want to do is tonight think with you about Matthew 11. This will be kind of more reflective tonight. And then tomorrow, really dig in a bit more into the, the Bible itself. Tomorrow morning, Hebrews 4. And tomorrow afternoon, Revelation 21, uh, well, the first five verses of Revelation 21. So the way I'm thinking about this, if you want to know how I am, is um, Jesus and rest, gospel and rest, heaven and rest. And uh, so that's where we're going. And what I've been asking the Lord for as I drove up here the last three and a half hours or so from Wheaton, where I live with my wife and three boys, is that he would, uh, I would tell you the truth and tell you that I've been praying for revival tonight and tomorrow, but I don't want to weird any of you out. Um, I do pray for revival when I do this kind of thing. It hasn't happened yet. I don't think, um, at least not that I could discern. But I ask God to pour out his spirit. By that, I don't mean weird things. Um, I don't mean, um, I mean, the media picks up the really out there things, people you know, on the floor barking like dogs and things like that. Um, what I mean is, when I say revival, guys, is that God the Holy Spirit would make what we say we believe and what we, what we would sign our names on the dotted line to, theologically, go from audio to video. Go from 2D to 3D. Go from being sleepy about that to being awake about it. And that's what I want for myself, if I'm honest with you. So that's what I've been praying for, and that would be a miracle. That can't be humanly manufactured. When I say revival, I don't mean revivalism. You know, 150 years ago in Kentucky, they'd have a revival meeting. They planned revival. You can't plan revival because it's sovereign. It's a sovereign work of grace. That's why we pray for it. We don't muster it up and manufacture it with emotionalism. But we look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And then lay that kindling and ask him to light that fire. So here is one picture of Jesus that is oxygen to me recently. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight to 30. Um, Jesus speaking. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, burdened. It's, it's the verb form of the same word at the very end of that passage. My burden is light. Who are burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My dad tweeted four or five days ago. He's a pastor down in Nashville. I had already decided I was going to speak on this passage here tonight. He didn't know that. He tweeted this. I follow him, so I... My vote for greatest words ever spoken. My vote for greatest words ever spoken. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29. I'm just reading through this a second time, okay, just so we hear it. 29. Take my yoke upon you. So we're thinking, great. He's going to give, he's saying, um, don't worry about being burdened. I'm going to give you a new burden. Take my yoke upon you. You know what a yoke is, right? The two oxen, you know, out on the farm, the, the yoke going over their shoulders, big, heavy thing. But then he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. That word is translated elsewhere in the New Testament, humble. Humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, he says, is easy. My yoke is easy. And that word occurs seven times in the New Testament, that Greek word. Never does it mean not difficult. Always what it means, guys, is kind. For example, Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Same word. My yoke is easy. My yoke is kind. And my burden is light. So, again, I'm assuming many of us are just exhausted with life. Um, some of us have no idea why. And we're finding out that just sleeping in for a week straight or going on vacation doesn't solve it. Uh, some of us are perhaps under a constant slow burn anxiety that has become normal for us. And it is wearing us out. Some of us are um, just uh, emotionally drained. We have no idea why. We just have nothing in the tank, nothing to give at home. We're gutting it out um, each day, not knowing if we're going to make it through, really, sane 2013. Some of us maybe are um, married, and over our marriage is such darkness that as far as we're concerned, there is I mean, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. It's just, um, it's awful. 
and it's, it's exhausting. Some of us are spiraling into using more and more alcohol and are not sure how to get out of that tailspin. Or really, if we're honest, if we want to. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. Now, I just want to ask you, do you believe that or do you not believe it? I will give you rest. You will find, he says again, rest for your souls. So that's why we're here. That's what I want to think about with you and enjoy with you, re-enjoy more deeply than ever with you. Rest for our souls. You remember Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Rest for your soul means rest way down deep at the very core of who we are, what makes us tick. It's way below how much sleep we're getting. It's another category entirely. And this is who Jesus is. Charles Spurgeon points out, the British preacher from 150 years ago over in London, points out that there is one place and one place only where Jesus talks about his heart. Right here, where he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. If you had to pick one thing, I mean, you know, you, you hadn't gotten up and you hadn't read this in the last few days, this passage, and someone said, what, what would you say if Jesus said to you, here is his very heart, and he only talks about it one place? I would not pick gentle and lowly. We learn a lot about his teaching elsewhere. We learn a lot about how he viewed himself fulfilling the Old Testament. We learn a lot about who he liked to hang out with and eat lunch with. Namely, tax collectors and hookers. But he only tells us in one place about his heart. And I just, I mean, I I don't want to move past this. Do you realize who he is? If Jesus himself were to open up himself to us and let us peer down into the very pulsating core of what makes him tick, and you, you know, like an onion, you know, you just keep peeling away layer upon layer. He's a complex man, but you keep peeling it away. Eventually, we would get to the core, brothers, of gentle and lowly, and there would be nothing further than that, nothing deeper. Some of you believe this at one level, as I have for most of my life, growing up in a Christian family and growing up in the church, but functionally, you really think he's a scrutinizer. And he's really, you know, he loves you. And God the Father approves of you because he now has to legally because of what Christ did and his work. But he's really pretty disappointed in you. And we read a passage like Zephaniah 3 about God singing over us with love, rejoicing over us, and that does not compute. John Owen said, Christ 
in um, communion with God 400 years ago, the Puritan John Owen, Christ loves life into us. So this is real simple. There is nothing clever about what I'm saying tonight. I, I, have, I have no insight for you, none. There's, there's nothing here. I, I don't have anything for you, really. All I want to do is ask you, is this the Jesus you're a disciple of? That's it. This is who he is. Gentle and lowly of heart. I spoke on the phone maybe 10 days ago with a buddy of mine who lives in Indianapolis and told him I was going to bring this text and, and open it up with you guys. And I said to him, I have gone, uh, his name is Drew. I said, Drew, I have gone for most of my life and missed this. And I'm, I'm playing catch up right now. I'm 34. You know, I've had all these Bible classes with Dan and, and degrees and so on. I'm, I have missed this. I've been too busy getting my system straight, doctrinal system. I've been too busy trying to straighten out my own heart. I have missed what the heart of Jesus is. Namely, gentle and lowly. Maybe did some of you guys see the story in a CT in Christianity Today, maybe two weeks ago, um, about and by, it was autobiographical, um, Rosaria Butterfield. Um, just an uh, amazing conversion. And she, she discovered who Jesus is. She came to see that Jesus is the Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30 Jesus, gentle and lowly in heart, and that that is who he is. Some of you might have read this. This is uh, the, the title of it. I, I want to read you just a few lines from the very end when she describes her conversion. The title of it was, My Train Wreck Conversion. I read this online. Then there was a big caption underneath that. Caption, as a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians, then I became one. As a leftist lesbian professor. And here is what she says. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. Open-handed and naked. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice... Here's the sentence that made me want to read this to you guys. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed, W-E-A-K, I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I was at rest.
the church that the pastor she had been getting to know did, did not give her the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I love and which I believe with all my heart, with one or two tiny little exceptions. <laughs> they loved her, and they let her see Jesus is not a scrutinizer. He is gentle and lowly in heart. Rosaria Butterfield met this Jesus, not the Jesus of mainline churches, who's a great moral teacher, whom we seek to imitate and then just get in despair because we never will. Not the Jesus of many of our children's Bibles that make him a really, really, really nice guy with perfect hair and well-lotioned hands and perfect teeth. Not the Jesus of the academic guild who dissect the Gospels in detached academic objectivity. Not the Jesus of Wheaton, Illinois, where I'm from, Mecca of evangelicalism, either Wheaton or Dallas, I don't know which one, where Jesus is paid a lot of lip service and not much heart service. Not the Jesus of the South, where my parents live, where you culturally attach to him, and you don't know who's a Christian because everyone says they are. But the Jesus whose very heart is gentle and lowly, who came to seek and to save the lost, he said, who came to call the, not the righteous but sinners, that Jesus. Now let me pause right here, guys, and try to handle two objections, all right, that you might be having. Objection number one. You might be thinking, all right, um, that's fine. Matthew 11 does say that. But... Jesus isn't always gentle and lowly in what he does and what he says and how he acts. I mean, he laid into people at times. So aren't you, Dane, just extracting something you want to say that's been helping you maybe recently to the exclusion and neglect of what else we see in the Gospels? The answer to that is, yes, to be sure, as C.S. Lewis said in the Narnia stories about Aslan, he's not a tame lion. Or I like how Lewis puts it in a, a letter he wrote in 1959 to a, a young guy, and uh, at one point Jesus says, gentle, uh, sorry, Lewis says, gentle Jesus, my elbow. The most striking thing about our Lord is the union of great ferocity with extreme tenderness. Both. Both poles. I mean, where would this guy fit on the Myers-Briggs? Lewis, add to this that he is also a supreme ironist, dialectician, you know, arguer, and occasionally humorist. So go on, you're on the right track now, getting to the real man, man behind all the plaster dolls that have been substituted for him. This is the, I like this, this is the appearance in human form of the God who made the tiger and the lamb. It's the appearance in human form of the God 
who made the tiger and the lamb, the avalanche and the rose. He'll frighten and puzzle you, but the real Christ can be loved and admired as the doll can't. So, I don't want to domesticate who Jesus is. I want him to retain his stark, glorious clarity. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to communicate anything like Jesus is mushy or flabby. But when he does lay into people, it is only ever to the Bible profs. The most conservative seminary professors of the day who were doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus was doing. In Matthew 23, Jesus lays into them and says, Woe to you because you're tying up heavy burdens. There's that burden language again. Twelve chapters after Matthew 11. You're tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and laying them on people's shoulders. Jesus says, I do the exact opposite of that. So yes, he had a problem with people who did that. But he was never anything anything except gentle and lowly in heart to ordinary sinners like me. Struggling their way through life who came to him. Objection number two. You might say, Dane, that is a, um, that's fine, but isn't this mainly just a conversion passage? And here we are at a you know, men's retreat. Uh, a lot of us, can I assume, are coming from church bodies where you're regularly participating and members and so on. Um, you might say, when Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest, isn't he mainly just talking about salvation as a point of entry, conversion? Isn't this an evangelism? Isn't this a text you want to put on your evangelistic tract? Now, how I would answer that is, it is certainly not less than that. It's not, it's not less than that. So if you're here today and you know that maybe you are part of a church, but you know actually you are on the outside looking in. Or if you, if, if you on the inside, you don't know where you're at, or you know you are not aligned in any fundamental way. You're not following Christ. He doesn't mean anything to you really at a heart level. Um, then I want you to know you are listening in to the great secret at the heart of the universe. Because no other, no other religion has a no other religion has the founder say here's the yoke I want you to bear. You have no yoke. Here's the yoke I want you to bear. It's light and easy. So it's not less than talking about conversion, but let me give you very quickly three reasons why this is more than that, and it's for you and me as believers as well. Number one, Jesus says, learn from me. Learn from me. You might, if you wanted to try to be real wooden in communicating the meaning of that word and phrase, you might say, be learning from me. Um, in other words, not download from me. And then get it in there and then move on. 
But learn from me. This is a process, not just a one-time event. Reason number two, Jesus is quoting a passage from the Old Testament here. He's quoting from Jeremiah 6, where God says, Stand by, here's, here's the whole verse, Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Greek text in the Greek of the Old Testament and the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament here is exactly the same. You will find rest for your souls. That is God speaking to his people. That is not God speaking to the Assyrians or some other nation. He says to his own people, you will have rest for your souls. And he says, walk in it, moreover. Walk in it. Walk in it. It's not just a one-time thing. So he's quoting a passage talking to God's people, Jesus is, uh, which leads me to think that he himself is talking to his own people as he does so and says the same thing. Reason number three, this is not just a conversion passage, is that there are a host of other texts throughout the Bible that tell us the same thing, namely that our ongoing strength as Christian men is rest, the rest God has given us. Isaiah 30, 15, for example, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. So I conclude this is not less than, but more than a passage relevant for evangelism or conversion. So Jesus says to us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, guys, we need this. We are a frenetic people in haste on the inside. I'm not mainly talking about on the outside and activity, though we do say yes to too much. Generally, I do anyways. But on the inside, we are a frantic people. Why? All the activity, the surface activity, the doing, the circumstance is not the reason we are frantic on the inside. That's a weak excuse. That's the surface reason. That's not the heart reason. That's not the rest for your soul reason. What is the reason beneath the reason? Why do we resist? Why do we resist this? I want to ask you something. Could it be that you are... Can I ask you to receive this? You don't know me. I know we don't have a relationship. So this is awkward. But can I ask you to to receive this? Could it be you are stiff-arming gospel soul rest without even realizing it? Could it be you think you want rest, but actually you're holding it at arm's length? Internal rest. One reason I ask that is the very way both of those passages from the Old Testament that I just read end. Can I quickly reread them? 
Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths, what the, where the good way is, walk in it, find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Tell me what is unappealing about Jeremiah 6, 16. Stand by the roads, look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. This is not a gouge out and eye cut off your hand kind of a text. What's, what could possibly be unappealing about that? But they said, we will not walk in it. Is that you? And if it is, are you ready to get in out of that and come to Jesus who is gentle and lowly in heart? The other text was Isaiah thirty fifteen. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. It's a mug verse. You know, it's something your grandmother puts on the fridge. In returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Beautiful. I love it. The next words. But you were unwilling. Why? Because they did not see and feel the heart of God to be what Jesus Christ says his own heart is. And if you say, well, this is the heart of Jesus the Son, can we really transpose that back onto the Old Testament and say this is the heart of God? I would just give to you, and remind you of John 14, where Philip, I think it is, says to Jesus, um, show us the way. Jesus is saying, you know, upper room discourse, a few days before he dies. Uh, I'm going to be leaving you. Philip says, uh, show us the way. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Then Philip says, just show us the Father and that's enough. And you remember what Jesus says. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So I put John 14 guys together with Matthew 11 and conclude the heart of the triune God, not the Son in distinction from the Father. The heart of God is gentle and lowly in heart. This is who God is. The people of old did not see that. They thought he was a scrutinizer. They thought he was a taskmaster. They thought he was cracking the whip. They thought he was the great, you know, disappointed one in them. They didn't see, it's even in Isaiah, they didn't see Isaiah 42. Uh, For example, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Or Isaiah 57, I dwell in the high and holy place, God speaking, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him, who's the other kind of person? I mean, I dwell in the high and holy place, no one can get up there, only God is up there. And he says he dwells in two places. Do you know this verse? Isaiah 57, 15. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I dwell way up here and way down here with those guys in the Wisconsin Presbytery who are in the pit. And some of you are. Some of you maybe because of stupid decisions you have brought on yourselves. And I have done that in my own life. 
And God dwells with us in the pit, guys. That is where he is. Where he isn't is in the mushy middle where we're all trying to project this impressiveness. Gentle and lowly in heart. Or one other one, Isaiah 66, verse 2. I love this verse. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. When I first read that, I get real discouraged because I'm not humble. And I'm not normally contrite in spirit. But what those Hebrew words mean are, he who is humble, that word means destitute. It means those who have been humbled. Poor. It's used in Deuteronomy of the, the, the financially poor, the destitute, the lowly, the wretched, and contrite. I looked that one up. That means beaten down. Those who are beat down. That's the people to whom he looks. So I've made a lot of stupid decisions in my life. I'm not going to tell you any of them because I don't know you well enough. But I have. And I'm going to make more. I'm 34, so probably more than half of my stupid decisions are ahead of me. And God says he dwells with him who is lowly and destitute and wretched and beat down and nowhere else. This is who Jesus is. I'm going to read you a quote from Jonathan Edwards, ask you a few questions, and then I'm done. Um, Jonathan Edwards, does that name mean anything to you? 250, 300 years ago, pastor in New England. This is from a sermon that he preached. By the way, I found 44 places where he quotes one of these three verses. 44. So he obviously loved these three verses. And he was not a mushy or flabby man, by the way. Edwards says, This is what you lack. This is the thing. You have been so long in vain seeking after. Oh, how sweet rest would be to you if you could but obtain it. Come to Christ. And you shall obtain it. And hear how Christ, he's talking about these three verses, hear how Christ, to encourage you, to encourage you, represents himself as a lamb. He tells you that he is meek and lowly in heart. And are you afraid to come to such a one? So I close with a few questions. For us. Are you resisting rest, thinking you want it, like the people of God in Isaiah and Jeremiah? Will you receive this with me down into your soul? Could it be that, how about this, could it be 
that spiritual warfare in your life is never going to look anything like um, what Hollywood thinks spiritual warfare is all about. It will never look dramatic. It will, it will never involve, maybe, probably, exorcisms and demon possession. Could it be that the greatest battle, the warfare between you and hell, that's going to go on in your soul is, are you going to be frenetic on the inside? Or are you going to rest coming to Jesus? That is a battle. Might it be that Jesus is actually not who you think he is? I am unlearning who I thought he was. Okay. Maybe you need to as well. Might it be that the only thing that will calm the frantic RPMs of your heart in 2013 is not four principles or seven strategies or just digging deeper and trying harder, but Jesus Christ coming to him, walking with him, talking with him, pouring your heart out to him, looking at him in this book. This is where we see him. This is how we come to him. Could it be that some of us, however much we may know and appreciate the Westminster Confession of Faith, have never really swallowed what the confession says when it says receiving and resting upon Christ? Have you felt the weight of Jesus saying, not come to church or come to repentance or come to obedience or come to faithfulness or come to your pastor or come to your Bible, all good things and all necessary things without which we will be very wimpy, weak Christians. But he doesn't say any of those things in Matthew 11. That's all I'm trying to point out here. He says, come to me. Don't get a mediator to come to me. I am the mediator. Don't have a friend bring you to me. I am your friend. Gentle and lowly in heart. Could it be that the reason you feel so exhausted with life has nothing to do with how hard your life is circumstantially? I want to come back to this tomorrow morning. But your disbelief in what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30, you just don't buy it. You really do think, if I just get my bank account secure enough, then I'll have rest. Last question, might it be that what you need in your tired soul this weekend and in your life is not more effort or get up earlier or pray longer or be more earnest or get more radical or give more, but come to Jesus who is gentle and lowly in heart. That is who he is. Let's pray together. (sighs) Heavenly Father, would you please 
if Jesus is the risen Lord, if he exists, if this is not all a huge hoax, then would you make these dear men feel who you are so clearly and beautifully seen in your son, the friend of sinners. And we are sinners. So would you plant gentle and lowly in heart, deep in our soul, I ask. Amen.